This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is episode two in our three-part series over um, Ibsen's explosive play, A Doll's House. Last week, we looked briefly at the life of Ibsen, um, his early origins in Norway, the beginning of his career, all the way up to this play, and uh, which is the one that launched him into the stratosphere of theater greats. And it still amazes me that uh, his plays are only outperformed by those of William Shakespeare. That's crazy. <laughs> it really is. We also looked at the very, very beginning of the play. We entered the dollhouse by meeting Nora as she came back from a shopping trip. We talked about her unique role in this play. She is the entire focus of the play. Nora is the doll. But we also begin to expand the metaphor a little bit because we are also introducing the idea that Nora is not the only person playing a part. Maybe she isn't the only doll in the house. No, I'm not sure she is, although she's the most interesting and definitely the focus of the play. This play is fascinating because of the the multitude of subtle details that leave subtext about so many different psychological and sociological ideas. This is, to a greater or lesser degree, a play about someone we all know. We've all met Nora, or we are Nora. All the great ones are like that. I know. To what degree do we all play parts, and to what degree do we want to? Do we use people? Are we being used? Are we in a relationship where both parties are using each other? And what are the moral implications of this? Does an arrangement like this bring happiness? What are the inevitable consequences? And are these consequences, and this is something that Ibsen was really fascinated by, different for men and women because of the different roles we absolutely cannot escape playing, either because of biology or sociology or just living here on planet Earth? And it's the last question that I want to start discussing today, because if you Google this play at all, I mean at all, the unanswered question that has plagued the universe. I know you didn't know this was one of those unanswered questions. The universe. 
<laughs> but here it is. Is Ibsen a feminist or not? And is this play a feminist play or not? Is Ibsen advocating for women's rights? You didn't know that that was huh. the... That's the question that's burdened the oh, existential okay. soul of the universe. There you go. <laughs> Just in case you didn't have that burning in your mind as you read the play. And it's really amazing that so many books that have staying power over the centuries end up really landing on these gender ideas. I mean, from Antigone to Wuthering Heights to the Scarlet Letter and A Great Gatsby, gender politics is absolutely inescapable at one level or another. After all, you know, it's only humans that make things interesting. Well, and males and females, and do we get along? Do we not? I mean, it absolutely is. And speaking of gender politics, in the 20s, since you mentioned The Great Gatsby, this guy named Herman Weigand, he's a notable literary critic from that time period. I know you've probably never heard of him, but what's, he has a really funny quote because he watched The Doll's House and he said this, that he was, like all men, this is his reaction after watching the play, momentarily shaken by the play. He said this, having had the misfortune to be born of the male sex, we slink away in shame, vowing to mend our ways. <laughs> That's funny, but yeah, you know, I don't know that I share that sentiment after reading Doll's House. I get a completely different interpretation of that, and no man shaming here. Well, indeed, and and of course, uh, you know, that's the goal of all women when they write or, or speak or anything. If you can shame, why not give it a go? But I'm kidding, uh, having a little bit of fun. But having said that, Henry Ibsen absolutely did not want to be labeled a feminist. He ran from this label. So much so that in May 1898, he gave a speech at a banquet held in his honor by the Norwegian Women's Rights League. And this is what he said in Hmm, his speech. So he's receiving this award and he says this, I am not a member of the Women's Rights League. Whatever I have written has been without any conscious thought of making propaganda. I have been more the poet and less the social philosopher than people generally seem inclined to believe. I thank you for a toast, but must disclaim the honor of having consciously worked for the women's rights movement. I'm not even quite clear as to just what this women's rights movement really is. (laughs) To me, it has seemed a problem of mankind in general. And if you read my books carefully, you will understand this. True enough, it is desirable to solve the woman problem, along with all the others. But that has not been the world purpose. My task has been the description of humanity. To be sure, whenever such a description is felt to be reasonably true, the reader will read his own feelings and sentiments into the work of the poet. These are then attributed to the poet, but incorrectly so. Every reader remolds the work beautifully and neatly, each according to his own personality. Not only those who write, but also those who read are poets. They are collaborators. They're often more poetical than the poet himself. With these reservations, let me thank you for the toast you've given me. I do indeed recognize that women have an important task to perform in the particular direction. This club is working along. I will express my thanks by proposing a toast to the League for Women's Rights, wishing it progress and success. The task always before my mind has been to advance our country and to give our people a higher standard. To achieve this, two factors are important. It is for the mothers, by strenuous and sustained labor, to awaken a conscious feeling of culture and discipline. This feeling must be awakened before it will be possible to lift the people to a higher plane. It is the women who shall solve the human problem. As mothers, they shall solve it. 
and only is that capacity can they solve it. Here lies a great task for women. My thanks and success to the League for Women's Rights. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what should we say about that? I mean, that seems pretty clear. He obviously is distancing himself from uh, women's rights. I mean, are we not to take him at his word? But I do want to add one comment. Uh, In U.S. history, there is a a thing called Republican motherhood that was huge during a colonial period. It was the responsibility of the women to raise these children with, uh, you know, moral correctness and, and uh, support of the uh, the country. I guess. And, you know, it seems a bit ironic coming from me because I'm always insisting that we take people at their word. But in this case, I'm going to say bull malarkey, Henry <laughs> Gibson. You are full of it. You may claim it or not, but you child, darling, wonderful man, are indeed a feminist. I don't care what you say. <laughs> He's absolutely a feminist. And why would you even accept an honor from a women's rights organization if you didn't support it? But that aside, there are things that he said in that speech that I do do agree with and I think he actually means. Well, I think he actually means all of it. He doesn't want to be writing propaganda for the women's rights movement. I, I mean, propaganda... Is not art. It's the opposite of art. It's not even honest by most definitions. And Ibsen wasn't trying to write propaganda, and he was trying to be honest. There's no doubt. And he's also definitely interested in humanity. All that aside, that's not mutually excluding his advocacy for the what he called the women problem. But <laughs> that's just a horrible way of defining uh, what was happening. He was interested and the sexual politics that define humanity. And he had a lot of sympathy in that area. Well, as I said before, nothing is more interesting on planet Earth than humans. And there is no doubt how men and women relate is a problem to use his language uh, and one that we really can't solve. Well, there's no doubt. But Ibsen, because he had this real interesting friend group of the theater as I guess all theater people are, had a different perspective on gender politics than a traditional man living a traditional Scandinavian lifestyle at the turn of the century. The women in Ibsen's world were extremely strong women. They were building careers in the theater. They were involved in creative endeavors. They were highly educated. We know this from reading his biography, but we also know this from reading his work. Ibsen created stories where the women outshine their male counterparts over and over and over again. It's almost like he was drawn to stories where women were grappling with patriarchal societies and imbalances of power that they found there. Well, the women who filled Ibsen's world really are a fascinating subgroup. And I also want to say Ibsen is an amateur psychologist. No doubt. And there's a whole tangent we could go down talking about the women in his life. And I'm slightly tempted to do that, but that would eat up all of our time. Just his relationship with his wife, Susanna, is very interesting. And some people say they had a rocky relationship. I think they did have kind of a really heavy-handed back and forth. But his son weighed in on their relationship later on uh, in his son's life and basically credited Susanna for Ibsen's entire career. There were many times, it seems, that he wanted to quit in the theater because it was kind of a rough road and he didn't really have the stamina for it, especially in those early days. And his personality was more introspective. It was not as strong maybe as Susanna's. And Sigurd said this, The world can think, my mother, that it has one bad painter the fewer 
and got a great writer instead. He said a lot of things, but that was the, <laughs> the right. end of it. Susanna was for sure a strong influence, obviously, uh, but beyond his wife, Asta Hunstein was a really famous and outspoken advocate for women's rights in Norway at that time, and I know she was a good friend of Ibsen's. And I may want to circle back to some of the history of women's rights next week after we get to the conclusion of the play, because uh, it's certainly something to think about in the context of the play's ending. But there is no downplaying the realities, really, that being a, a single or divorced woman in Scandinavia or really anywhere in the Western world was not the easiest path to take in life at that time. No, and I think how this affected women's psychology really fascinated Ibsen on a personal level as well as a professional level. On a different occasion when talking about laws, Ibsen can be quoted as saying this, A woman cannot be herself in contemporary society. It is an exclusively male society with laws drafted by men and with counsels and judges who judge feminist, feminine conduct from the male point of view. And of course, my favorite Ibsen political quote was when they were asking him about property rights for married women. He said that men should not even be consulted in drafting this kind of a law because, and I'm going to quote, to consult men in such a matter is like asking wolves if they desire better protection of the sheep. <laughs> In other words, what would they have to gain from giving married women property rights when they can just have their property? <laughs> okay, okay. So back to the question of whether Ibsen was a feminist. Um, I think there's enough uh, indicting evidence to suggest that Ibsen was involved at least in sympathy with the imbalance of power in the patriarchal society. However, I would like to point out that women are not without power in every generation. No, and I think that's a very nice way to say that. He did see the disadvantages of a society where distribution of power was so unevenly distributed between the sexes. But having said that, I think Ibsen, at least uh, in his plays, does not portray women as necessarily powerless in an unequal society. And this is the dynamic that he highlights. I'm really not even sure Ibsen would claim that if society were just as unequally balanced, but that the balance of power favored women, women would be less tyrannical than any of the men that you see in any of these plays. That's a different question and a different idea for a play altogether. Where I want to land, and I think we need to open our discussion of the play today, is to take a position on this issue uh, before we read the play. I want to come down and say that I really think you can't run away from the idea whether Ibsen wants to deny it or not, that this is a definite feminist play. Well, I agree. I mean, I absolutely don't think we can escape that. <laughs> Having said that, writing a play where the theme is men are bad, women are good, is just not interesting. That's not even something that would last. That's been done. It's been done over and over again. You know, I've, I've read it a hundred times, to be honest with you in high school freshman English classes, and I've produced literary magazine after literary magazine with poems that are filled with that theme, and they never get out of the high school level. No play will stick around for a 100 years if all it has to offer is man bad, women good. <laughs> There's just got to be more than that. So this play does more than that. It focuses on women, really one woman in particular, and it's looking at several things as we look at this one woman. One of them is the imbalance of power between sexes and how it affects a marriage and home life in general. 
But that is not all we are supposed to think about. And that's not the simple idea that makes life interesting. Well, indeed, a, a doll's house is such a personal play in some sense. And uh, as Thornton Wilder tells us in our town, most people choose to go through life with another person. So uh, this is about how some people live that life, um, a way that's slightly cynical. Maybe. <laughs> I think it is a bit. So this play pulls back the curtain on this couple and their love affair. And two people who think they are in love, but we are left to question this reality because what is the basis of their love? What is the basis of their marriage? Uh, you know, their lives are great. They've had lots of fun. They've traveled. They have children. He has a good job. She spends her day shopping. But Ibsen is asking, okay, so now, what is the basis of the relationship between these two people? What is it really? Uh, you know, could it be something besides a devoted commitment to walk through life together? And could it be something like um, societal expectations and uh, competitive relationships with people outside the home and personal narcissism or, or simply just the objectification of another person? Yeah, Ebsen wants to expose a marital reality that way too many people see in their own lives and in their own relationships, and they wish they weren't looking at this reality in their life and in their relationship. He asked questions that many people asked at the time, and many people still ask, sometimes years into their marriage, after they've tried to live one way or another, and they've made a certain set of choices, and it didn't get them where they wanted to go. Well, having said all that, are we ready to open up this text and walk through the rest of Act 1 and 2? I think we should. So, last episode, we read a little bit of the dialogue between Torvald and Nora. I find it awful. <laughs> He's so condescending. He calls her animal names, and not even cool animal names. I, I got to thinking, what would I want to be called if he called me an animal name? And here's a couple of them. I think you can call me Flying Phoenix. <laughs> you like alliteration. <laughs> Cunning Fox. But he doesn't do that. He goes with little squirrel. <laughs> For the record, Christy hates Torvald's names. I really do. If you can't tell, and, and just so you know, I have not been able to resist the temptation to call Christy my little skylark Ugh. and my little squirrel for the last several days. And, and every time I do it, uh, if I'm within striking distance, I pat her on the head as I call her those <laughs> names, too. And I, I might as well tell you, I've been enjoying it, but I'm not sure she appreciates it in the spirit that it is intended. No, the pat on the head is particularly awful, and it, it highlights our height discrepancy. Uh, since this is a podcast, you can't see this about us, but... Gary's a full 11 inches taller than me. So patting me on the head is particularly <laughs> condescending. <laughs> it's awesome. Uh, and it's not just about the animal terms, although I do find those hilarious. Um, using the uh, diminutive by adding the word little all the time. It's and, awful. And then a the possessive adjective, my. That's the worst. That multiplies the level of the condescension. And even I can feel it as, as I say it and as I pat you on the head, my little squirrel. <laughs> Good Lord. Well, Ibsen leaves absolutely zero room for doubt that Torvald views uh, Nora as his possession and his prize, the most expensive possession, and even one that he loves dearly but clearly, a possession. That is premise number one in Ibsen's argument. Yes, and having set that up, though, he switches gears and immediately proceeds to paint Nora unglamorously as well. She condescends to Mrs. Lind 
almost as much as Torval does to her. I find it slightly passive-aggressive, really. Some people think Mrs. Lynn is supposed to represent a feminine ideal, and I, I don't know if that's true, but it's certainly something to think about. In fact, uh, she's a lot of good things that we value now. She's uh, an independent, working woman. She's more authentic, I think. She's definitely more self-aware than Nora. She's been exposed to life. She hasn't had the insulation from problems that money can buy. She suffered. She's had to problem solve and figure things out for herself. She wasn't raised with money. And as a woman in a patriarchal society, she's had a lot of challenges. When she arrives to talk to Nora, we find out that these two haven't seen each other for years. And the choices they've made has gotten them to different places. Nora has made good because she landed a good husband. Christine thought she did. She married well, too, but her sugar daddy died and left her broke. Nora knows this about Christine, so she does what so many girls do when they confront an old girlfriend who's fallen on bad times. She hijacks the conversation to brag about herself, but she does it in a very sympathetic way that the other person knows quite Clearly, that she has done well for herself. Oh, my. <laughs> Girls would never do that to each other, would they? Oh, I can hear the irony in your voice. Well, it just reminds me of a little personal anecdote about teaching in an all-girls high school. I was explaining female aggression uh, to a male teacher and how males don't see it and understand it. And he looked at me and he said, oh, we don't have any of that going on around here. Yeah, well, it's uh, the entire made. game. <laughs> But anyway, shall we read the passage? Yes, let's do. How do you do, Nora? How do you do? You don't recognize me, I suppose. No, I don't know. Yes, to be sure, I seem to. Yes, Christine! Is it really you? Yes, it is I. Christine, to think of my not recognizing you, and yet, how could I? How you have altered, Christine. Yes, I have indeed, in nine, ten long years. Is it so long since we met? I suppose it is. The last eight years have been a happy time for me, I can tell you. And so now you have come into town and have taken this long journey in winter. That was plucky of you. I arrived by steamer this morning. To have some fun at Christmas time, of course. How delightful. We will have such fun together. But take off your things. You are not cold, I hope. Now we will sit down by the stove and be cozy. Now take this armchair. I will sit here in the rocking chair. Now, you look like your old self again. It was only the first moment. You are a little paler, Christine, and, and perhaps a little thinner. And much, much older, Nora. Perhaps a little older. Very, very little. Certainly not much. What a thoughtless creature I am, chatting away like this. My poor, dear Christine, do forgive me. What do you mean, Nora? Poor Christine, you are a widow. Yes, it is now three years ago. I knew it. I saw it in the papers. I assure you, Christine... I meant ever so often to write to you at the time, but I always put it off, and something always prevented me. I quite understand, dear. It was a very bad of me, Christine. Poor thing, how you must have suffered, and he left you nothing. No. And no children? No. Nothing at all? Not even any sorrow or grief to live upon. But, Christine, is that possible? It sometimes happens, Nora. So you are quite alone. How dreadfully sad that must be. I have three lovely children. You can't see them just now, for they are out with their nurse. But now you must tell me all about it. 
No, no, I, I want to hear about you. No, you must begin. I mustn't be selfish today. I must only think of your affairs. But there is one thing I might tell you. Do you know we have just had a good piece of good luck? No, what is it? Just fancy, my husband has been made manager of the bank. Your husband? What good luck. Yes, tremendous. A barrister's profession is such an uncertain thing, especially if he won't undertake unsavory causes. And naturally, Torvald would never be willing to do that, and I quite agree with him. You may imagine how pleased we are. He is to take up his work in the bank at the new year, and then he will have a big salary and lots of commissions. For the future, we can live quite differently. We can just do as we like. I feel so relieved and so happy, Christine. It will be splendid to have heaps of money and not need to have any anxiety, won't it? Yes. Anyhow, I think it would be delightful to have what one needs. No, not only what one needs, but heaps and heaps of money. Huh. Interesting. I know a man whose wife did something similar to that and what Nora is doing. And, and let me say this. This woman at, at the time was in her 50s, and she had invited a friend to stay with her because her friend's husband uh, had left her, and she was really entitled to nothing. And the woman had no career, but had lived a, a pretty nice lifestyle now that she had nothing and was falling from a comfortable life into a dubious one. Well, the woman I know, the Nora in this case, invited her to stay uh, in order to console her. But uh, two days before she came, she went out and bought all new outfits, complete with brand new jewelry for each day of her friend's visit. And she also bought uh, fancy food they usually didn't eat, and they prepared these elegant desserts. And she pulled out fancy china and, for the duration of the visit, used them, pretending that this was the normal course of her daily life. And I remember the event because it seemed particularly cruel to me, to subtextually brag on how great your life was in comparison, but it was done so nicely. <laughs> I know, and I'm not sure if Nora's trying to be aggressive here. You, How can you tell? Female aggression is so subtle, and especially if it's so nice, but it can make us feel uncomfortable. It's definitely different than how men treat other, and how women and men treat each other, I guess. Uh, I guess what we see here. Uh, is this interaction between Christine and Nora. And Christine also is going to fight back subtextually. Instead of just succumbing to Nora, she mocks Nora for being so naive and having lived a shelter life. She turned all of Nora's bragging about being pampered and almost changed it into an accusation of being sheltered and therefore stupid. And so, not to be outdone, and to prove to Christine that she is as sophisticated as Christine, Nora brags about her little financial tryst, and we learn about this debt that she's incurred. And turns out it's quite a big debt. Nora has recklessly taken an enormous debt to fund an entire trip to Italy for a solid year, and she did this with absolutely no ability to pay or a plan as how she might repay it. At some way it, it seems like it doesn't even occur to her that this would eventually have to happen that's the side of nora that makes her kind of unattractive and it makes me not feel so bad for her when i see her getting patted on the metaphorical <laughs> head and being called a, a little, little squirrel. squirrel well that's true uh but in another very real way you have to feel a little sympathy for nora the text never questions her motives uh, she did it for love she did it to save her husband and although nobody knows about it, she actually has some pride for having saved her husband's life. And 
he is her provider and a provider of her children, and he was unable to provide, so she just managed it. And she did it all without wounding his pride, something that she knew that would kill him. And there is some nobility in that. And she's been carrying around a huge secret burden for a decade, working secretly and all of this time knowing it was the only way at her disposal to save her husband's life. And 10 years is a long time. And if you take her at her word, which we have to do, and compare her to Christine, she does have something to be proud of. She saved Torvald's life. She did what she had to do to keep from becoming Christine, actually, or even worse, because she had three children to provide for. Christine does not. Okay, I can concede that. Uh, you know, I was going to mention, Ibsen got the plot of this story, A Doll's House, from a real story from a person that he knew and cared about. Ibsen had a protege by the name of Laura Peterson Keeler. She was a Norwegian journalist, and he was very fond of her. Was that another one of his strong female <laughs> friends? Well, of course it was. Anyway, she was married to a man who was extremely paranoid about debt, like Torvald. Laura, as his wife, did what Nora did and secretly borrowed money to finance an Italian vacation for him because he needed to recover from tuberculosis. She worked frantically to repay the loan. She exhausted herself, turned in hack work, but she never could come up with enough money to pay back the debt, so she forged a check. When she did that, her husband found out, used her crime as grounds to divorce her, claimed that she was an unfit mother, and had her committed to an insane asylum. That is terrible. Well, it is, and it really upset Ibsen. He told Susanna about it, as well as several other friends. One friend wrote him back and said that this entire thing, she said this, She has committed a forgery and is proud of it, for she has done it out of love for her husband to save his life. But this husband of hers takes his standpoint, conventionally honorable, on the side of the law, and sees the situation with male eyes. And so we see the inspiration for this play, at least the legal part. I think anyway. you're supposed to. Uh, Torvald is not like that guy in the sense that that particular man in real life was obviously mean. And I don't see meanness in Torvald, but Ibsen is uh, making a much larger point that would have been lost had Torvald been cruel and abusive. This play is not about cruelties and abuses. It's about using people, uh, even if it appears to be consensual and it's about the lack of intellectual and emotional intimacy in a marriage. And that brings us back to Nora, because this play is about Nora. And although the bigger point of this play is the marital relationship as a way of understanding this complex thing, which is a marital relationship between a man and a woman from the vantage point of a woman, Ibsen surrounds Nora with other relationships. The Nora of Act One projects perfection, like that lady you were talking about. She has a wonderful husband who adores her. She has three beautiful children. She has a nanny to take care of them. The only thing that is keeping her world from total perfection is this irritant money. <laughs> is that true for everybody? I know. So enter Dr. Rank. Oh, yes. Uh, the rich old man dying of... Congenital syphilis. Unfortunately. <laughs> Without any dependents who, who comes over every day. And oh, by the way, he is in love with Nora. Yes. And Nora's relationship with Dr. Rank is another one of those things that we've all seen in the real world. And 
sometimes can make us uncomfortable. And it doesn't make Nora look all that great either, at least for part of it. Nora is keenly aware that her physical appearance is sexually alluring to Dr. Rank. They've never acknowledged this with words, but the sexually charged subtext of their relationship allows her to be seductive and him to be seduced without anything physical really ever happening. It's an obvious and open game. In act two, she hits him lightly over the ear with her stocking that she's been dangling before him with the pretext of displaying part of her costume she will wear at the dance. (laughs) Uh, It's an open game so much so that Mrs. Lind, when she finds out about Nora's debt, is going to really erroneously assume that Dr. Rank was Nora's lender. Uh, It's an obvious assumption. And all that playful secret-keeping between Nora and Dr. Rank in front of Mrs. Lynn just enhances this idea of um, fake intimacy between the two. She even cusses in front of Dr. Rank, something that she doesn't have permission to do with her husband. Oh, no. Dr. Rank encourages her to say the D word. The D word. Just as she's... (laughs) Hiding more macaroons. Not the macaroons. From Torvald. And Torvald prohibits cussing and macaroons in his little Skylark. Ugh, there's just so much awful there. (laughs) But Ibsen cleverly embeds the idea that there is a possibility that Rank will leave his fortune to Nora. She even kind of fantasizes a little bit about it. I know we're jumping ahead, but in Act 2... When they chat, they're chatting in this dark living room. She reveals her flesh-colored stockings, and Dr. Rank expresses a desire for Nora. He's going to say, let me use his words, he wants to have some poor show of gratitude as a guarantee he will be remembered fondly. (laughs) Well, and since we're jumping into Act 2 and that discussion between Nora and Dr. Rank... Uh, Nora demonstrates nobility when she shuts down the game between them, and she let the opportunity slip by to get the money from Dr. Rank, although I do think she considered it. Uh, uh, In fact, she considers it all the way until he says out loud what they both had known to be true about his feelings for her, and he would have given her whatever she wanted for just a little sexual cajolery. Uh, Nora rejects him and tells the maid to turn up the light. She's not going to add what would feel like prostitution to her list of indiscretions. And in other words, she's creating her own sense of moral boundaries and she rejects the easy way out. Yeah, so you do see that although she wants to play games, she's not willing to make you know this full commitment. But let's drop back to Act 1 again because we got ahead of ourselves and introduced this other man who uh, is bringing all these ambiguous moral choices to the surface for Nora, Krogstad. What a great name. I know. This is the man who has been fired by Torvald. He's the man that has lent Nora money. He's the man who has blackmailed Nora to convince her husband to give him a job and has, as we find out, he's also the man who has been in love with Christine for years, and she dumped him to marry the old rich dude that died on her. There you go. <laughs> wow, he's, he's got a lot of uh, baggage to carry around. And Krogstad, according to Dr. Rank, is rotten to the core. And Rank doesn't even know about his blackmailing of Nora or any of the other stuff. And the general understanding of Krogstad is that uh, he is a man with a criminal record for having committed forgery and 
Torvald wants him gone from the bank because he doesn't feel Krogstad has publicly paid for his indiscretion. Plus, and this is the worst part as far as Torvald is concerned, Krogstad was a childhood friend, and this association is embarrassing to Torvald. Well, let's read the part where Torvald tells Nora about his feelings toward Krogstad. How pretty the red flowers look. But tell me, was it really something bad that this Krogstad was guilty of? He forged someone's name. Have you any idea what that means? Isn't it possible that he was driven to do it by necessity? Yes, or, uh, as in so many cases, by imprudence. Uh, I'm not so heartless as to condemn a man altogether because of a single false step of that kind. No, you wouldn't, would you, Torvald? Many a man has been able to retrieve his character if he has openly confessed his fault and taken his punishment. Punishment? But Krogstad did nothing of that sort. He got himself out of it by a cunning trick, and that is why he has gone under altogether. But do you think it would... Just think how a guilty man like that has to lie and play the hypocrite with everyone. How he has to wear a mask in the presence of those near and dear to him, even before his own wife and children. And about the children, that is the most terrible part of it all, Nora. How? Because such an atmosphere of lies infects and poisons the whole life of a home. Each breath the children take in such a house is full of the germs of evil. Are you sure of that? My dear, I have often seen it in the course of my life as a lawyer. Almost everyone has gone to the bad early in life has had a deceitful mother. Why do you say mother? Well, it seems most commonly to be the mother's influence. Though naturally, a a bad father's would have the same result and... Every lawyer is familiar with the fact this Krogstad now has been persistently poisoning his own children with lies and dissimulation. That is why I say he's lost all moral character. That is why my sweet little Nora must promise me not to plead his cause. Give me your hand on it. Come, come, what is this? Give me your hand. There now, that's settled. I assure you, it would be quite impossible for me to work with him. I literally feel physically ill when I'm in the company of such people. How hot it is in here, and I have a lot to do. Yes, and I must try and read through some of these before dinner, and I must think about your costume, too. And it is just possible I may have something ready in gold paper to hang up on the tree, my precious little singing bird. No, no, it isn't possible. It's impossible. It must be impossible. The nurse opens the door on the left. The little ones are begging so hard to be allowed to come in to Mama. No, no. Don't let them come in to me. You stay with them, Anne. Very well, ma'am. Deprave my little children? Poison my home? It's not true. It can't possibly be true. Torvald's speech is remarkably strongly worded and unwavering, and it's not even the way he usually talks to Nora, and none of the uh, playful, childlike condescension. I mean, she's always known that if her husband found out what she's done, their relationship would be problematic at least. And But this speech uh, seems really particularly stern. She even voiced a hope that maybe one day when it's all over, and she's old and unattractive, 
knowing the story might be something that he could appreciate after the fact. Well, that speech killed that dream for sure. I mean, I also think it's terrible that he makes this connection with historical sin as if it was something that's passed down through the families. We didn't read that part where he traces his back to her father, but he does. I'm really unsure what to make of all that, but Ibsen embeds a generational idea one way or another into every character of the story. Nora's dad, according to Torvald, apparently is a negligent father, and Dr. Rank's father left him this little gift of congenital syphilis. Christine's father was such a negligent father that she was forced to marry a man she didn't love for money because of, to support his wife, and she had to forsake the person she did love and who loved her back. And here, Krogstad is accused of being an unfit parent, although we find out over the course of the play that the reason he wants to regain his respectability is so that he can be an honorable man for his sons. He wants to be a good father. It certainly adds a little bit of a spiritual dimension into the play, which is ironically set on one of Christianity's two holy days or high holidays. This play actually demonstrates two views of Christmas, if you want to take it even further down that road. Of course, Christmas has a secular dimension in every household, the kind we all can enjoy, whether we're Christians or not. And It's the end of the year. There's the aspect of Christmas that's going to involve parties and gifts and family. And it's in this sense that the tree is at the center of the Helmer's household. But that is not the redemptive story of Christmas that we will see play out a little later in the life of Christine, which also makes this direct connection. Christine and Krogsdab. Torval and Rank's worldview leave no room for any kind of Christmas redemptive story. As Dr. Rank reminds us, nothing is ever free. And Torval reminds us that our personal flaws are things that we unfortunately, whether we want to think about it or not, can pass down to our children. Our mistakes, in Torval's view, can become generational curses. Nora's comments at the end of this Christmas sermon uh, show us that she's conflicted, maybe for the first time in her life, and in accepting Torvald's worldview at face value. And she doesn't feel like a mother corrupting her children, but maybe she is. Maybe she is toxic like the man he's described. You know, maybe her sin can never be redeemed, no matter how many years uh, she sits doing copying work and paying back her debt. She's not sure about that, but she is sure that Torvald must never know the truth about her because he believes it is. I mean, another very interesting thing that happens, uh, and we see this in people who are in relationships with people who live in relationships that are unequal, Nora seemingly for the first time in her life questions whether the man that she has always seen as infallible may not have the truth. Uh, she's emerging from a fog, if you want to understand it like that. And when we have unequal relationships like this, be it for any reason, when one party begins to question the inequality, things often burn to the ground. Well, and there's no doubt Nora is questioning the status quo. She's questioning this game that she plays, this game that she even enjoys. There's a lot of hide-and-seek in this game that she plays, the children, by the way, and the player physically playing hide-and-seek, kind of highlighting this, and we're supposed to notice that, but they're children. It's a childish thing to do. It's not fun to do as an adult. 
Nora and Torvald do play hide-and-seek. Even Christine has to hide in the room away from Torvald. And Nora is questioning the game. The first act of this play is about society. The Helmers project domestic happiness to everyone they know. And the central metaphor is this Christmas tree that was dragged in at the beginning. It's decorated with innocent material secrets, wrapped gifts. Nora wants to wrap money on it. It is the expression of the good life. It's at the center. The good job, the good house, the good children, the beautiful wife. Everything, Torval particularly, but Nora too, wants to project to the world. Krogstad threatens all of this. And in Act 2, we're going to see a shift. Notice that the Christmas tree in Act 2 is stripped, bedraggled, and the candles are burnt out. The values of Act 2 shift from material and physical and social to invisible and psychological ones. Nora confides in Christine the nature of her relationship with rank and the strange fantasies that go along with that, so that game's exposed. The dialogue between Nora and Krogstad in Act 2 shifts to a discussion from the social nature of Nora's crime to a darker one, the psychological ones. Krogstad leaves a letter in Torvald's box, so that secret is going to be exposed. Nora and Krogstad talk about suicide. She's considering it as a way out. Krogstad is the one person in the world that she can talk about that with because he understands her. The major metaphor for this scene also shifts. In Act 2, we are no longer talking about Christmas trees. We're moving to the Tarantella. The Tarantella. The Dance of the Spider. And learning about the Tarantella is where I thought we'd stop today and talk about that, but I think... We're running out of time, and I do want to spend some time talking about the Tarantella, so let's pick that up next episode, and we will. By the way, if you've noticed, the music on the intake and outtake is piano, and it is actually a Tarantella. After we talk about the Tarantella next time, we will talk about the end of the play. It's very famous ending, so if you haven't read the play, we've tried to avoid telling you the story Read it, watch it, listen to it, get the audio. It never gets old. There is a lot to look forward to, and um, and I hope you'll pick back up on our next episode. So thanks for listening, and as always, we invite you to connect with us any way that you can through Instagram, our Facebook page, or LinkedIn, or Twitter, uh, or our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. Also, and most importantly, Please help us grow by talking about us and texting an episode to a friend. Peace out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.